This show is brought to you by our generous patrons at patreon.com slash falloutlorecast. Robots Radio presents the Fallout Lorecast. Welcome to the Fallout Lorecast, a place for the Fallout community to come together to explore the boundaries of our knowledge about the world of Fallout. All right, Vault Dwellers, Wastelanders, here we are. Vault 111. 111. The Vault from Fallout 4. We are running out of vaults. It's been a year, over a year now that I've been doing this show. And uh, early on, I thought, you know what? I'll start chugging away through the vaults. That'll give me a lot of content to go over and a bunch of really interesting topics. And we are almost done all of them. There's only a few more left after this one. And we finally made it all the way up to the vault from Fallout 4, which is probably the one that most of you are familiar with. If you haven't played any of the other games, you're most likely to have played Fallout 4. So you're going to know a lot about this one. I'm going to take this episode in a in a deeper direction. We're going to not only explore what's going on with the vault a little bit, because there's only so much information about it, and most of you have played through the games, but we're going to dive a little bit more into the technology that is being used in the vault and how that actually works in the real world. So it's another one of those types of episodes. Oh, and before we get into this, uh, I got some messages from some of you guys who were a little bit concerned about uh, what BuddyBot had done in collecting those brains in the last episode, and I'm still trying to work that out. Um, I never really got a good look at the brains, so I can't confirm if they are human brains or where they came from, and in fact, uh, BuddyBot uh, got kind of upset and uh, took them with him and left, and I... Mm, I don't know. I don't know where he's going. So uh, I'll keep you posted on that. If you see a robot uh, wandering around out there with a bunch of brains, then let me know. Okay, thanks. So most of us are familiar with Vault 111, 111, my 11th birthday. Um, <laughs> that's what that makes me think of. Uh, most of you will probably get that reference as well. So let's just go into a little bit about the background of the vault and the things that we can know about it from the Gamepedia.com wiki article about it. It's not very long. It says here, Vault 111 was constructed to observe the effects of long-term cryogenic stasis on unsuspecting test subjects. And this is going to be the main topic of this episode, cryogenics. What is cryogenics? It has to do with freezing living things in order to preserve them so that they can be reused in the future or in the case of a human being potentially brought back to life or woken up in the case of of this game. And it goes on and says uh, the test subjects, most of whom were residents of the nearby neighborhood of Sanctuary Hills, right? That was the neighborhood you were in. You also rediscover it in the game later on when you wake back up and the town of Concord. 
Due to the nature of this experiment, the vault was assigned only a skeleton crew of scientists and guards. The staff were only supplied for 180 days with directions to evacuate upon receiving an all-clear signal from Vault-Tec. After evacuation of staff, the test subjects would be monitored remotely. Now, this is interesting. 180 days. So, either they were expecting that the specific area around Concord wasn't going to be blown up with nukes, or they were just expendable. Because there's three options here. One, they survive for 180 days, they are given the all clear and they leave, or they aren't given the all clear, but they leave anyway because they need more supplies. And they either survive out in the wasteland because that specific area wasn't nuked, or they leave and are immediately irradiated to death, or they stay in the vault and they starve to death. So chances are they were considered expendable. It goes on and says, however, as the staff soon discovered, no all clear signal was forthcoming. As supplies dwindled, the vault security team led a mutiny against the overseer, planning to open the vault door and escape. The ensuing firefight killed many, and any survivors presumably left the vault. The fate of these men and women is unknown, although it is highly likely that they died soon after leaving. Makes sense, right? We all know from the beginning of the game that that nuke hits very, very close and the world is definitely irradiated, at least the surrounding area of Concord. The test subjects frozen in their pods remained untouched for over a century. Now, as we know in the game, and I guess spoiler alert, the vault was infiltrated at some point and an individual was removed and another individual was killed and you ended up back in cryostasis for quite a while longer until you were eventually released from the cryogenic chamber and then went on your merry way in order to uh, either follow the quest lines and side with some factions and find your son or, uh, you know, just spent hundreds of hours doing a bunch of side quests and, uh, you know, helping out. Preston Garvey. So those <laughs> those were your options there. Now the light the layout in this vault is actually very simple. It's a much smaller facility than many of the other vaults, and it was clearly clearly set up for only a very small crew to survive at least for 180 days, and then the storage area where the individuals were stored in cryogenic pods. And even then, there weren't that many cryogenic pods, which is kind of interesting. You think you'd pack more people in in order to test that out. Now, why cryogenic pods? Well, this makes sense. If we go back to the idea that the vaults were connected to this idea that we were going to potentially leave the planet and explore the stars or explore the stars for another habitable planet, then we have to travel extreme amounts of distance. And one of the ways that you can combat something like that is to make sure that the people on the spacecraft are cryogenically frozen. If you are going, if it's going to take you even at near light speed, hundreds or thousands of years to travel across the stars, then 
you either are creating generational ships where human beings will exist for generations in order to get from one place to another, which seems a bit tricky. I mean, think about how much society changes in just a few hundred years. Would the people on that ship be able to actually survive that? Would they, what would it be like? Uh, can you imagine being born and dying in a very limited amount of space and just surviving in order to get to a new location? And then knowing that you're going to have children and then those children are going to have to survive in that very limited space in order to get to another location and the limited amount of freedoms within that, that space and the idea that things would not deteriorate uh, socially in that situation so that over dozens of human generations that you still have human beings to get to a, a location or another place. The other thing that can happen in situations like this, and this is one of these um, sub theories about evolution is that when you bottleneck a species into a very small group. So let's say you, you design a very large spaceship that can travel from one solar system to another and it fits a thousand people, which could be a very large amount of people, but in the sense of a human society, it's actually very small. You are limiting that gene pool to just that thousand individuals. So any characteristics that human beings have that are not part of that gene pool are automatically excluded. The other issue with this is that you are also limiting and focusing in on the the problem areas in the specific genes of that population. So if that specific population is higher than average across the thousand people to have uh, issues with heart disease, then that becomes a much bigger issue for that group of people. The other thing here is that you are also influencing that population based on their environment. So the types of people who are likely to survive and thrive in whatever that bottleneck environment is are the ones who are going to be passing on their genes. So the the composition of that thousand individuals, let's say you keep it to a thousand individuals that every family can only have, you know, two children, two parents, two children. Like you try to maintain that that ratio of a thousand people over every generation, then you end up with a significantly shifted gene pool after even just a small amount of generations because the kinds of people who are able to find a spouse or able to live long enough and mate will be the ones who are more likely to pass on their genes. So even after, say, 10 generations, the gene pool is very different. This creates issues. This creates a, a situation where you are not taking a very good representation of the diversity of human genes and moving them into this new situation for them to thrive and survive and, and therefore creates a bunch of unknown variables. So the other solution to this is to take a population of people, freeze them, put them in some sort of stasis where they can travel for hundreds or thousands of years from one place to another and then bring them out of stasis in hopefully a situation that they are functional the same way they were right before they went into stasis. Then that population can be let out into hopefully an environment that looks very similar to Earth in order to repopulate Earth with the same gene diversity that they started with. 
So that's the idea behind cryogenics and why that would be something you would want to test out here. So that got me thinking, um, what are the limitations of cryogenics today? There is a business that is actually not very far from my house. I drive past it fairly regularly and I don't remember the name of it, but it's, it's a cryogenic business. The idea here is that after you die, you can take your body or your head or your brain and they will freeze it for you and store it. And I'm sure it's not a cheap process. And on top of that, I don't think that there's any guarantee that we will ever have the technology to effectively unfreeze you and or that the process of freezing you today is the same process that we would need in the future. Should that actually work? You know, like maybe there's a way that is better to freeze a human body, brain, head, whatever. Um, but uh, that's a real thing. And this gets me thinking of uh, Futurama with the heads in the jars and, and all that stuff. But that could be a very real future for us if that's something that actually can work out. But that raises so many other questions. Like, for one, does everybody have the right to freeze their, themselves after death? And two, if you don't actually die and get to a place where you can be reborn in the future, how do you acclimate to that? How do you travel forward in time and then all of a sudden are reanimated and then deal with the world? Or what do you even do from there? I mean, how do you even have any money? Do you have enough money that you just put a bunch of money into investments or a bank that you hope is still going to be around in a few hundred years in order to take that money out of the bank and then live off of it in the future? Like, how does this work? It seems like a really scary situation to wake up from some sort of stasis into a society that you are not familiar with speaking a language that has moved on in a society where your money may not even be worth anything and you may not even have anything. Like what if you wake up from cryostasis only to have to become like a homeless beggar in a world that you don't understand? It seems like a very, very tricky situation. So anyway, the rest of this episode after the break, I'm going to go into some of the actual details that we know about cryogenics today and the potential to freeze your body or your head or your brain. So stay tuned for that. Hello there, old chap. Good to see another of General Atomic's finest still eager to serve. All right, Vault Dwellers, Wastelanders, this is your host, Tom or Robots. Now, I'm very, very excited during this little mid-break to reveal something very, very exciting. Well, two things. One, I hope you guys have tuned into the Fallout Hub, which is a new podcast with me and Ken from Chad, a Fallout 76 story, and Dave from the Vault Boys WV. And the first episode is out. I'm still trying to get it up on Apple Podcasts, but it's up on Spotify and on Anchor. So check the show notes for a link for that, or just search the Fallout Hub podcast. It'll come right up. It is a really fun project with the three of us doing some really fun, quirky stuff. Uh, we discover a vault and we have conversations about Fallout stuff, and I think you guys will love it. It has been featured already before the first episode even came out. It was featured on Forbes.com. Uh, uh, we had a little teaser episode, and now we have the first episode out, and it's been getting rave reviews. So go check that out. I think you guys will love it. Second thing, and this is the really, really important thing here. So I hope you didn't skip over the middle part. Um, 
Big news, big, big, big news. And I hope I'm not revealing this too early. This episode is on purpose going off, going out on Tuesday, February 11th. And I have to delay it a little bit for the patrons. So I apologize if you guys were hoping to get an episode when you normally did, because this is the date that we can talk about the fact that I'm drawing this out for dramatic, uh, delivery purposes. Um, Chad, a Fallout 76 story, who is one of the shows on our network, uh, created by Ken, my good buddy Ken, is going to be at Bethesda Game Days, which happens at the end of February in Boston, right alongside PAX East, and performing a live show invited by Bethesda themselves to go up and perform a live show in front of that audience. And Ken will be there and I will be there. This is the reason I've been saying I'm going up to PAX East. I'm actually, this is the main reason I get to be a part of the show. I'm going to have a character I get to play. It's going to be so much fun. Uh, The script is coming together. The rest of the cast is going to show up. A lot of the cast is going to be there acting out their parts. It's going to be so awesome. We're going to get to meet a lot of the people who work at Bethesda, the people behind these games who have been putting their, you know, blood, sweat and tears into these these awesome, awesome games, these really cool stories, these great characters, this lore that you and I love so much. And I'm very, very excited. So I will be up there in Boston at the end of the month on uh, Friday and Saturday, or I guess I guess are the main two days. I think that's like 28th and 29th. And if you are in the area, if you want to swing by Bethesda Games Days is should be announced also today. And you can just come by. It's it's a free thing. You don't have to you have to pay to get into PAX East. But if you just want to go hang out at Bethesda Game Days, get there early, get in line early and you can get in and we can come hang out, you know, hang out, check out the show live. And uh, who knows? You know, hopefully we'll have the opportunity to go hang out at a bar afterwards and do some hobnobbing and get a drink and, you know, whatever. It's going to be so much fun. I, I could probably go on and on about this and just you know, gush, but, um, super excited. I hope you guys are too. And if you have any questions about any of that stuff, uh, I'm always on the discord and, uh, social media, you're going to see some really cool announcements coming from the Chad show, uh, some videos, teaser stuff, just stay tuned. It's so good. And if you haven't caught up on the show, start listening. Now you've got a few weeks, listen to the Chad show, get caught up. There's you know, a dozen episodes full of all sorts of fun stuff. Go check it out. Super fun stuff. Actually, there's, I think there's more than a dozen episodes with some of these little mini episodes. Anyway, go check it out. I will talk to you guys more later. Back to the show. If you have any questions about Nuka World, I'd be delighted to answer them. So I have here in front of me the cryogenics.org, the Cryogenics Institute for Technology for Life, uh, FAQ about cryogenics, which answers a lot of questions about cryogenics. So I'm going to pull out some of the best ones and go over them here because I think this is probably a solid source for this. There's a few different places you can go for answers, but I think that this one's a good one. So let's let's just see what they have to say about some of these cryogenic topics and questions. So first of first of all, what is cryogenics? Cryogenics is a technique intended to hopefully save lives and greatly extend lifespans. It involves cooling legally dead people 
to liquid nitrogen temperature where physical decay essentially stops. Liquid nitrogen gets really, really cold in the hope that future scientific procedures will someday revive them and restore them to youth and good health. A person held in such a state is said to be cryopreserved patient, a cryopreserved patient, because we do not regard the cryopreserved patient as being inevitably, quote unquote, dead. Man, can you think about the amount of uh, energy it takes to maintain a temperature like that? So I just looked it up. Okay, nitrogen exists as a liquid between the temperatures of negative 210 degrees Celsius and negative 196 degrees Celsius, which equals in Fahrenheit scale, negative 346 degrees Fahrenheit and negative 320.44 degrees Fahrenheit. Holy crap. That's very, very cold. Below, below that, nitrogen freezes and becomes a solid that's very, very cold. So they're talking here about preserving legally dead bodies. The next question says, can cryo cryonics, I don't want to say cryogenics, but cryonics be performed on living people? Legally, not yet. We hope that one day it will be under carefully controlled conditions for terminally ill patients. But this is not critical to the premise of cryonics. At legal death, most of a person's tissues are still alive. Thousands of people have been revived after, after they have stopped breathing or their hearts have stopped. Okay, well, that makes sense, right? Legal death is the point at which, under the current state of medical science, the doctor gives up. But just as many people living today have been revived after what would have been considered irreversible death even 50 years ago, the doctors of the future will not give up so quickly, <laughs> hopefully. Cryonics attempts to transport our patients preserved at or near the instant of legal death to those doctors for treatment <laughs> across many, many years, seemingly. All right. So how do you know revival is even possible? Well, we believe that revival is a real possibility because, one, many biological specimens have been cryopreserved, stored at liquid nitrogen temperature where all decay ceases, and revived. These include whole insects, vinegar eels. What is a vinegar eel? Many types of human tissues, including brain tissue, human embryos, which have later grown into healthy children. Can you imagine, hey, I was originally a frozen embryo? I guess that's really not that uncommon, though, huh? Uh, and a few small mammalian organs. Increasingly, more cells, organs, and tissues are being reversibly cryopreserved. The repair capabilities, number two, the repair capabilities of molecular biology and nanotechnology increasingly point to a future technology that can repair damage due to aging, disease, and chronic suspension. And three, current progress in stem cell tissue regeneration, 3D biological printers, and other advanced technologies convinces many experts that we might be able to revive people in a healthy and youthful state when these technologies mature. All right. So next question, has any mammal been cryopreserved and revived? Answer, not to cryogenic temperatures. Dogs and monkeys have had their blood replaced with protective solution and cooled to below zero degrees Celsius with subsequent rewarming and revival. Nematode worms have been preserved in liquid nitrogen 
and subsequently revived. At the July 2005 Society for Cryobiology Conference, why did I mess up cryobiology? It was announced that a rabbit kidney had been completely vitrified to solid state at negative 135 degrees, rewarmed and transplanted into a rabbit with complete viability. Although a whole mammal has not yet been cryopreserved to cryogenic temperatures and revived, science is moving in that direction. However, the success of cryonics does not depend on the state of current cryopreservation technology. We believe that the damage caused by current cryopreservation is limited and can someday be repaired in the future. Molecular repair technologies like nanotechnology will provide techniques in the future that are not available today. Okay, so that answers the question about how do we know that our method of actually preserving somebody today isn't going to be something that is unusable in the future and they think well we can fix it in we'll fix it in post you know we'll we'll record what we got and then we'll just edit it later that kind of thing hmm all right so what does this cost it says here what about costs i heard cryonics is supposed to be incredibly expensive well good news everyone actually the person who wrote this I'm hoping has seen futurama because they write good news you heard wrong good news everyone with CI, oh CI, the minimum fee of cryopreservation at CI, which includes vitrification perfusion and long-term storage, is twenty-eight thousand dollars. Okay, not the most ridiculous price in the world. All right, a one-time fee due at time of death, and though the fee can be paid in cash, usually a member has a life insurance policy made that pays the amount to CI upon death. So basically, you give them your life insurance. Um, <laughs> a life in term, uh, I'm sorry, a term life insurance policy is the amount of the minimum fee often costs around $30 per month for a person starting their policy in good health at middle age, blah, 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 blah. It goes on and on and on. There's other plans. If you want to pay less upfront that go, that costs $35,000 and some other info in here. So, okay. So not ridiculously expensive, you know, like if you've been putting some money away and have a insurance plan, then yeah, maybe you can cover that. Okay. That makes sense. But what if the company goes under? Like what happens? Like what happens to you? Nobody's going to keep preserving your body. Or what if we just never develop the technology? I mean, how long does this insure your body for? You know, after 50 years, a hundred years, do they eventually just go, ah, nobody remembers this guy anyway. Just turn off your cryopreservation pod like how do you know <laughs> how do you know that this is something that's going to be around there in the future uh seems a little bit seems a little bit crazy um just a few more i want to throw in here what's the neuro option and why don't you offer it <laughs> neuro is short term for neuro cryopreservation it refers to the practice of removing and cryopreserving only the head of a person declared legally dead the theory is that only the information contained in the brain is of any importance and that a new body could be cloned or regenerated at some point in the future or just stuck on a robot right uh, it requires less space and maintenance and so costs less, but our price for whole body preservation is already lower than what other providers charge for neuro. Really? Wow. Okay. So there, you're getting a real good deal here. This, this specific, uh, 
this specific business. <laughs> um, and then here's another one that's really good. But aren't you really talking about raising the dead? Exclamation mark. No, of course not. No, they write no. Cryonics is a matter of rational procedure, not religious miracle. Cryonics can't restore life to people whose brains have been long been physically destroyed. Been long been physically. What? They need to rewrite this. A Lincoln or a Julius Caesar or those cremated. Cryonics simply but reasonably claims that if you cryopreserve a person in a way that limits damage, then that person's brain structure may be preserved sufficiently to make the eventual recovery of life and health at least possible. And let's not confused, be confused by language. Dead people, apparently dead people, no heartbreak or respiration, are revived every year in hospitals all over the world by the thousand. By the thousands. The dictionary definition of death is permanent cessation of vital functions. Therefore, if someone even after cryopreservation has recovered, that means the person wasn't really dead in the first place. We think that's the best way to look at it. <laughs> so don't worry, you're not actually raising the dead. Uh, moral and ethic questions. What is the Christian view of cryonics? Like there's a definitive Christian view about anything. Um, <laughs> it's a very, that's a very uh, limited way of looking at things there. I mean, every denomination has a different view of all sorts of different things. Anyway, cryonics is strongly consistent with the pro-life views of Christianity and other religions that value the sanctity of human life. Noted Christian theolo theologian John Warwick Montgomery has written favorably about cryonics. And it goes on and on. So those are some of the issues. So those are some of the questions. If you guys are interested in digging into some of these other FAQ answers and questions, then cryonics.org slash about us slash facts, F-A-Q-S, is where you can go read the rest of these. Um, I'm sure there's others you can find on the internet. That, I mean, there definitely are. These were just the ones that I pulled for this episode. So we're not quite there yet, but... Companies out there are betting that we will be and that you should give them your money so that you can come back in the future. Now, none of this answers the question about what you're going to do after you come back or what the world's even going to be like, you know, like, are you going to be able to get a job? Like, how do you interview for a job? Somebody's like, hey, tell me about your experience managing an office. When did you start? Well, I started 347 years ago. I mean, how does what? Wait, what? Yeah. I managed an office 347,000 years ago. So wait, so are you familiar with nano computer programming language? Well, no. Have you used a, a cyber mainframe interface before? Uh, no, I don't I don't know what that is. I mean, like what, how do you even, how do you, are you even employable? How does that make any sense? I mean, you better save a ton of money in a bank somewhere or investment or uh, give it to your kids and hope that they have kids and they have kids and they have kids with some sort of memory that you are coming back. I, I don't understand how any of this stuff works. I'm guessing that it's mostly for people who think that they're going to solve this in the next 10 or 20 years rather than hundreds of years from now so that they can come back in a relatively similar time period, right? Like that's the only way this would work. I don't know. What do you guys think? Let's have a discussion about this in the channel on the Discord. Uh, share some of your thoughts on this. And it, it, is this something that you would do? Would you do this? 
are you that tied to living that this makes sense? Personally, I kind of, I'm kind of cool with, you know, at some point you just, you're just not here anymore. Like you did your thing. You had your time. It's time to move on. I don't know. That's just my thought. What do you guys think? I'll talk to you guys next week. Have a good one. Oh, and let me know if you're going to be at Bethesda Game Days. That would be awesome to see you guys. All right. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Fallout Lorecast. All sounds and music are owned by Bethesda Softworks, and no copyright infringement is intended. If you have something you'd like to contribute to the show, please contact us at falloutlorecast at gmail.com or follow us and post some messages to us on Twitter at falloutlorecast. And if you'd like to support the show, tell a friend, or check out the rewards you can get for becoming a patron at patreon.com slash falloutlorecast. I really appreciate you listening, and I'd love to hear from you soon.